0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the MetaZoa Podcast, a show about nature by those who love nature. I'm your host, Phoebe Carnes, a passionate biology
1: student and your resident alcoholic. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Dunford, a biology-flavored comp sci major.
0: Amazing. How are you doing today, Jacob?
1: I'm doing all right. I've got me some uh, English tea time tea and some water. I'm ready. I'm ready to go.
0: That sounds scrumptious,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so scrumptious. Well, we have some amazing news stories to start off today. Let's get into um, it. Let's get. Let's just jump right into it. I'll, I'll open this story up with with I, I very recently went to New York, as you know, and that was my mm-hmm. first time mm-hmm. being on an airplane, and. <laughs> Just like the idea of an airplane is so interesting to me being what is it like fourteen thousand feet in the sky, even more, mm-hmm. and th- the weird thing about New York is like once once you get up to elevation you you are coming right back down, <laughs> like it's not that far <laughs> from where I am right now no, in Asheville no. um so so that was such an interesting experience, but one thing that I thought about, and this is probably just because I'm a nerd, right is like what what do animals that, that are riding on airplanes think like <laughs> like what what is running
1: <laughs> I've I'm wondering the exact same thing like because I imagine relocating these massive animals like a lot of the african animals like elephants rhinos that kind of thing like how do they feel these mass these several tons of animal Going yeah, much faster like, than they were ever meant to go, <laughs> and much higher. Like, do they, <laughs> do they, they even know? know? <laughs> yeah, are they even aware? Like even the ground's know. kind like, of shaky today. Like, this is weird.
0: Yeah, do they even comprehend it? Who knows? But um, I, I, I say all of this to open up with this very interesting news story I came across about a relocation project in Africa involving rhinos that were transported on a plane to get to a new national park. Uh, these these were Eastern black rhinos. Are you are you familiar with those?
1: Yes, I am familiar with the very sad story. The, the, <laughs> the, black very, rhino. the very
0: unfortunate, yeah. Uh, for, for, for those who are not aware in the audience about the, the plight of rhinos in Africa, um, Eastern black rhinos are listed as critically endangered as are all rhino species, unfortunately. Um, it's estimated that there's only about 6,000 Of them left, a little over six thousand, which is not that many, even for an animal of that of that size. I mean, just just imagine how how big Africa is, and there's only six thousand of these rhinos left to to roam the plains. I mean, in
1: reference to be how many how many elk are in Colorado?
0: Three hundred (laughs) thousand. (laughs)
1: <laughs> this okay, this is wanna...
0: <laughs> this is a callback to the previous episode, <laughs> uh, which everyone should listen to. It was very fun. Um, but for for rhinos, the the biggest concerns have been poaching and habitat loss. Of course, their horns are are used in, in a bunch of different medicines in, in other countries, um, which has created quite the the wildlife market for rhino horns. Even though mm-hmm. scientifically we we know rhino horns don't have any sort of like medicinal use period Um, at that point you should just eat your own fingernails because it's the same (laughs) same same material Um, (laughs) and it it hurts less rhinos if you do that but i i I, poaching is is such a big issue in africa um, that in 2022 alone there were 561 eastern black rhinos that were poached across
1: africa jeez when there's only six thousand left that's a significant amount
0: yeah yeah, it was it was, it was quite devastating. Um, but in, in December of 2023, there were five of these eastern black rhinos that were flown 2,734 miles. Okay, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a <laughs> From uh, Limpopo, South Africa, to Zakuma in Chad. I believe I'm pronouncing those correctly. That's almost
1: as much as the Appalachian Trail, I believe. I actually think it's more. I don't remember. It might actually be a little bit more. I think it's a little but bit. But this was
0: a, a thirty-six hour flight for these rhinos, so they they were on here for thirty-six hours. hours. They, they sense, did make they a couple. Were they sedated or
1: anything, or do they just like? here you go. It,
0: it wasn't, you know. I tried to, I tried to like find that out because that was in that was my thought. Is like, well, maybe they just kind of sedated them to put them to sleep. but it was not very clear to me. It didn't mention that in any of the articles that I read, so I'm just imagining like these these rhinos in these in these iron crates, like getting fed hay or something and just kind of looking around <laughs> like what is Everything's really happening? shaky. <laughs> Everything's really shaky.
1: <laughs> Cause I imagine um, they probably didn't give them windows.
0: Probably not. No, but like that, I'm sure they had there. like, like caretakers and, and stuff with them to, mm-hmm. to monitor them and stuff. And I, and they did land like once or twice during the trip. Um, so I guess to give the rhinos so it a chance just to like thirty
1: six hours straight. They probably needed more fuel and stuff as well.
0: I would imagine, yeah. And I mean, this was one of those really big, um, like C one thirty planes, like mm. military grade, huge cargo plane. Um, but this whole this whole project is part of a relocation effort in in Zakuma, which is Chad's oldest national park. Um, and there have not been rhinos there for over forty years.
1: How old is so the park?
0: Um I'm not I'm not actually sure when the park was established but um so Africa it, has has gotten really really good with
1: uh Yeah, I've noticed that. Um, There's like new parks popping up all the time.
0: Yeah, and they they they're doing really well about actually monitoring like the species and stuff and protecting the environments within the park. They do a really good job. But this has been a project that's been many years in the making. They've been working very hard to try and get these these rhinos back because we we always talk about the elk here on the podcast, but if you can imagine the 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 work that went into just bringing the elk back to the mountains, you know these big undulate animals. That there was a lot of there was a lot of work involved in that. A lot of you know trying to figure out what are they going to do to the environment, how are the plants and the other animals going to be affected, and and rhinos are, are much bigger than elk are so so this is this is this is is, is not something that's going to be undertaken very lightly and they certainly did not do that in this case but just to kind of give you an idea of the work that these people have been doing um the elephants in in the national park between 2002 and 2010 decreased by 95 percent mostly due to, to poaching um, but in recent years, the park has been able to recover 40% of that population. So that's, that's pretty impressive.
1: It's very impressive.
0: Yeah. So, so, you know, clearly they, they've been doing a lot of really good work to try and, and bring all these species back. Um, but this is not the first round of reintroductions that they've tried to do with these rhinos. So six rhinos were brought in, in May of 2018. But, but currently, only two of the females of that group survived. So, so it's believed that there were, there were a number of factors that went into why the others did not make it that long. But it's, it's believed that they did not adapt well to the environment. So they, they kind of brought them in at a weird time where it was right after the wet season and going into the dry season. So, mm-hmm. so their, their thinking was like, well, the rhinos were doing really well during the wet season, of course. Um, but then the dry season hits and they hadn't had enough time to like figure out what places in the environment they'd be able to find sufficient mm-hmm. food and stuff in by that point. So, um, after, after this happened, they brought in those two females just to monitor them and, and make sure they were in like a, like a managed environment. Right. Yeah. And uh, Martin Rickleton, he's the African Parks Regional Operations Manager. African Parks is like their, their equivalent to the park service. Um, yeah. And he stated, quote, it happened very quickly. It's not a pure science doing translocations. An awful lot of work went into feasibility studies. Experts looked at everything. So kind of going back now to, to the present time, they bring these rhinos in. Um, and and they, they seem to be doing really well, actually, in their new their new home. They've changed a couple things to kind of help the rhinos out. So first of all, they changed when they're releasing them. So now it's going to be kind of at the, the beginning of the wet season to kind of, you know, make it to where maybe they're not going to starve. They, they have these very large enclosures that they're going to keep the rhinos in. And even after they release them, they're going to make sure that they still have access to this this pin where they're going to be putting some, like, supplementary food and stuff out for the the rhinos. Um, and here's an interesting, like, little note that I found in the article that I just thought was a little, was a little strange. Um, they originally were going to bring six rhinos in for this okay, translocation, okay. not five. But one of the males that they were gonna bring in had a history of depression.
1: Oh no. Apparently.
0: And so they decided, you know what? Maybe maybe moving him two thousand miles <laughs> <laughs> across across the continent will not will not be good for his, oh, his
1: health. Poor dude.
0: I know. So like this makes me wonder, like, are these captive rhinos that they're moving or like I that also was not very clear to me in the articles, whether they were wild or in some sort of like captive sort of situation.
1: I don't know. Um, I would think that they would, they would be uh, wild ish at least because if they're captive, I I doubt that they'd have a good chance of being able to like, you know, take root. Yeah. As well.
0: Yeah. And it's, there's a lot of reserves and stuff out there too. That maybe that it's like they're wild, but they're still fenced in. You know, to, like mostly
1: for the, protection. Uh, yeah, kind of like with us with the elk, where they're wild, but you know, you kind of know a lot of them on a, a more behavioral, personal level. So I kind of think yeah. it's kind of like that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I just thought that was an interesting little note. I, I wish it nothing but good good wishes for that, that
1: rhino. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, <know>. I wonder <laughs> that if he's lonely now that he's. I think he's got a couple of friends, but.
0: Yeah. I mean, male rhinos are not as, like, rhinos in general, not herd animals, really. I mean, they, they kind of like keep in touch with their community, but they're not going to be traveling, you know, in large groups or anything like no, that. I so, I don't, that. yeah, they actually, <laughs> funny little little side note here. Um, have you heard about rhino poop piles?
1: No. Can't yeah, say. Yeah. So, have.
0: so. There are, there are places where if there's a lot of rhinos that are kind of in a in an area a, a mini square mile area mind you there's going to be like a central poop pile that everyone visits occasionally
1: uh-huh. and
0: their 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 dung has pheromones in it so these are the chemicals that can allow animals to communicate so they have like this community-wide poop pile that they use <laughs> to say hello to each other and i'm guessing like ketchup <laughs>
1: and there's that's funny
0: as as kind of like gross as that is it's also kind of cute
1: that's it's really (laughs) cool actually
0: we're just just keeping up with one another so (laughs) um (laughs) moving back to to the story here um rickleton once again he he said quote of course i personally am worried about the rhinos All this stuff is very complex there's a lot of things that can go wrong we've looked at it since 2018 and we're comfortable we've worked out what the problems were and confident enough to go ahead we go slowly with the projects to make sure we get it right to learn and then bring in additional animals translocations include risk but i do believe they are necessary um so it it seems to me like the rhinos are going to be in pretty good hands from here on out
1: that's awesome speaking of which um if in case you were curious uh, this national park was founded in 1968.
0: Oh that's actually further back than I thought
1: that's mm-hmm. awesome good for them and, and the Appala- I was wrong the Appalachian Trail is significantly shorter at about 2200 miles versus you know their flight was what 2700 yeah 200734 yeah. miles so it's about 500 miles longer than the app trail
0: still I mean that's a huge. And, I mean, like, Africa is a place that's so diverse with their habitats, too. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's awesome. I'm, I hope it all goes really well for them in the, the repopulation project. That'd be awesome to have rhinos back there.
1: Um, that would be awesome.
0: Moving on to some other super exciting news. This one I'm very excited about. We have a new species of seal in the Arctic, a everybody. Species? A new species of seal. Which, like, can I just preface this by saying that new species are found somewhat regularly, but you never hear about a new species of, like, mammal, and if you do, it's not going to be something like a seal.
1: Yeah, like I don't think I've ever heard of, like, a new species of seal, like, in my lifetime anyway. Of course, I haven't done a whole lot of research on it, but, you know, you hear new species of this or that all the time, but I cannot recall a time I've heard of a new species of seal.
0: It's definitely been decades, maybe even like over a century, since we've had a new seal species. I mean, you just you just don't hear about large vertebrate animals that we don't know about yet. Um, right. But it's it's actually kind of funny because it's it's a new species to us in in the Western world. It's uh, not a new species gotcha. to the local of mm-hmm. of this of this place. So, local hunters in the ice fjord area of Western Greenland, That's they've known cool about word. this seal forever. I know the fjord. That's fjord. I love it. Fjord, fjord. Um, but they've they've known about these seals forever. Like, they they've been hunting them. They've been living alongside them. This is this is not a shock to them. And so there, there's a there's this project that was led by Danish and Greenlandic researchers. And what's really cool is they actually brought in these local hunters and local people for their expertise and their help on this project. Um, so I thought that was really great. But this is what allowed for this new species of seal to be described. So, this is the Congia ring seal, um, which on the show doc, Jacob, you'll be able to see the yeah, Congia I'm ring at the, seal.
1: The two yeah. pelts right now.
0: So, so the one on the left is the one of this new seal species, and the one on the right is like your average Arctic ring seal. So you can see it's not one of those things where it's it's like a cryptic species you can only see through their genetics like they're very very different in, in fur pattern mm-hmm. um, and those listening on audio will of course have this on our social medias as
1: well wait um, you said the friends. one on the, the one on the left is the new one right yes okay It's not that cool them, and the one on the right is I mean you could see the rings if you look really close but you could definitely see the rings on the left one
0: yeah it's like much more pronounced and, and they're more of like a yellowy brown color um so that's i think really cool too is that it's not like one of those things where you're gonna have to take a genetic sample to tell it apart it's like you can see just from yeah looking at it that these are these are definitely different um so what these what these researchers and these local hunters did is they captured some seals um, and they they fit them with these little these little satellite transmitters. Um, so I don't know I if you've you were seen what they
1: fit them with saddles. And I was like, what? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, they they rode them. Uh, no, um, but they they fitted them with these little satellite transmitters. And I don't know if you've seen like what they look like on seals. But it's like this little box that they put on the head of the seal usually, because every other part of the seal is wrinkly. Um, so they have to put it somewhere <laughs> where there's not that many wrinkles. Um, and they Wait, they put this I little gotta, satellite transmitter. Oh yeah, please do. And it's just this little box with this little like antenna. And so the idea oh, is my that God. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so fun. <laughs> um, but but the, but the idea is that every time the seal is going to come up for air, that satellite transmitter will send out the signal, so they'll be able to know where the seal has been since the last time it it came up for for air. That's kind of it's the way it got that that,
1: a little hat
0: i know it's so it is, fun
1: it's so, cute. <laughs> it's so cute it's very um, it, but it's, it gives me very big happy feet vibes though
0: oh yeah it, it does a little bit um so so the the researchers just by getting this information alone they said quote we could see that the kongia seals primarily stayed inside the ice fjord. we were able to count it's the seals weird. from a plane and therefore able to estimate that there are only three thousand approximately um, of these seals, these special kanja ring seals so not a very big population um, considering the fact that like your, your average Arctic ring seal is I think probably in like the hundred thousands at this point, I mean there's so many of them so mm-hmm. that, that, that right away was kind of like a little like oh this is different this is weird and also your your average ring seal is going to travel a lot further for food, they're not going to stay just inside this this one area, right? And as, as we talked about, of course, the fur patterns, too, are very unique to this species. So um, they were able to do some genetic samples, of course, and found that these two populations have been reproductively isolated for over 100,000 years.
1: Jeez. So they're, okay, they're really not new.
0: No, they've been around for a while. And, like, we don't know how this happened because, I mean, they're living in the same place. So... The reason why they became isolated, we have no idea. It's not like it's a geographical separation or anything like that. Um, So that's that's another thing we're going to have to discover, which is very exciting. But Rune Dietz, she's a professor at the Department of Ecoscience at RS University in Denmark, Mm -hmm. one of the researchers of the study as well. And she said, quote, there are many other fjords in the Arctic that have not been studied in detail, and where the ring seals may have also locally developed new genetic variants, so it's quite possible that there is some more some more seals out there, and we just we just don't know. That's cool. Very, very cool. Um, again, like you never hear about any sort of animal no. of this size being discovered anymore. So that's so super the idea exciting. That,
1: that not only have we found one, but there is a possibility of more. That's cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, even though like. You know we the, the arctic is still so unexplored i mean it, it's still so harsh for humans to be able to get up there and for researchers to be able to get up there so who knows how many other species of, of seal or or fish or any other you know organism might be up there and we just we just don't know right and, and by we i mean us in the western world because these, these <laughs> local people were like yeah we see this all the time <laughs> um that also points out a good a good point too that i want to make of like i think it's very important to bring indigenous and local tribes into these sorts of conversations too because they they know their environment and they know the other beings in that environment um so i think i think scientists are starting to realize that and bring local people into the conversation more which is really nice i think that's very important other exciting news We've got an eighth Jaguar in the US, Jacob, spotted in Arizona. An eighth Jaguar? An eighth. I didn't know we had that many. I thought we had like two.
1: <laughs> yeah, but apparently we got it, eight.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so this week, we had a Jaguar identified on a trail cam in the Huachuca Mountains. That's a fun word to say. Chukon, to say that's Arizona. Fun. That's so fun. Um, and like of all places, a Jaguar is gonna be in Arizona where there's like
1: right.
0: no rainforest.
1: <laughs> that's yeah. a little interesting.
0: To me. But appar- apparently, like at one point, there were jaguars all up and down, like Arizona and New Mexico and those sorts of states, Texas, probably even. Um, so, yeah. But this is the eighth individual jaguar that has been confirmed in the southwestern U.S. since 1996. Um, so, there, I mean, really, when you think about it, that's what, like a little bit over 20 years ago? And we still don't, I mean, that's only eight of them. So there's not a huge population of jaguars in the U.S. still that we know of. But the jaguar was declared as endangered in 1997. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service set aside 750,000 acres of critical habitat for jaguars in Arizona
1: and New Mexico.
0: That's a lot of
1: land. That's a lot of land.
0: For eight that's jaguars? That's more than
1: the, like, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park.
0: Yeah, but like, this is like the interesting thing to me is like, we have eight of these. And, and at the time that they, they set this land aside, like, maybe one or two, I don't, I don't know for sure. But there, there weren't that many that we knew of. And we set aside so much land for them. Like, that's awesome. Good on us. Cool. That was a good move. That was a great move. But the way you can tell these jaguars apart is you can look at the rosette patterns on each jaguar. So when you, when you look at a jaguar's pelt, you know, you have kind of those typical little spots, right? And then sometimes you have the spots where it looks more like a circle with a spot in it, or it's kind Mm -hmm. of something along that pattern, you know, Um, that's what the rosettes are. So each jaguar is going to have its own individual, you know, pattern of rosettes and spots and stuff. That's
1: cool. It's kind of like fingerprints.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so these researchers, they just have all these like trail cams set out. And every time they they get a jaguar on there, they're just like comparing the spots and everything like that. Um, and actually, <laughs> I've heard there's like there's some there's some researchers now. I don't know if they use it for, for this um, instance, but you can use AI to help you identify them. So you can train the AI to um, identify individuals based on their patterns and then just run it through that program. Um and do it that way.
1: Oh, that's, so that's cool. I cool! Imagine it's similar to facial recognition. You just kind of you know have to adjust it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah,
0: you have, to, you have to train the program, but yeah. So and that's a lot faster than us trying to look at
1: these. <laughs> one, like, two, <laughs> three. Ooh, that one gonna a circle.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so Morgan Southern, she's the Jaguar Recovery Coordinator with uh, the Rewilding Institute. They're great; everyone should check them out. She stated, "Quote: Whether male or female, this new Jaguar is going to need a mate. Now is the time for us to have a serious conversation and take action to bring Jaguars back." End quote.
1: Very Keeping fun. Very jaguars exciting. native to? Uh,
0: well, mostly South America.
1: That's what I thought. Because you're like they're endangered. Yeah. I'm like with eight individuals. <laughs> It doesn't feel like... No, an
0: yeah. That's... Yeah, that's not all of the jaguars left. Um,
1: right.
0: <laughs> but... I was pretty they, sure they, they were from be, South
1: America, but...
0: Yeah, that's where most of them are now. But, I mean, even their, you know, habitat loss and stuff has really mm-hmm. damaged their populations. I don't even know if they've been poached as much as, like, you know, tigers or leopards or other, other big cats. I think it's really just been habitat loss that's really, like, harmed their populations, but... Um, there's some places in South America, I had a professor and he did a lot of work in his in his younger years in like the Pantanal and stuff, which is like the place to see jaguars nowadays. and And he would say, you know, they would just like walk right beside you almost. I mean, they're just like totally, they don't even
1: care. That's cool. Also kind of freaky, but that's cool.
0: Yeah. Well, there's not actually that many jaguar attacks. I looked at the data recently. I don't remember the numbers, but there's been like... I think less than 10 attacks in the past three decades or something
1: really? and most of these
0: have wow. either been you know like animals that were backed into a corner or you know something like that not like jaguars hunting people or something
1: so right right
0: so that's that's good you shouldn't be too worried about a jaguar attack probably um probably <laughs> probably we do have to move on to some more more scary news actually how, are you familiar okay. with avian flu have you heard about like this?
1: The, the bird flu? Yeah. Yes.
0: So bird flu has been around for, for a while, but it's, it's very recently kind of taken the spotlight. So avian flu or the H5N1 virus, I'm going to call it avian flu because I'm not saying that, <laughs> um, has killed millions of birds. Millions. And thousands of mammals globally since of mammals? The outbreak of mammals, yeah, since the outbreak in 2021 crazy, crazy numbers it's, there.
1: It's a bird flu
0: yeah, but it can so it it mo- it mainly affects birds and and we think it kind of originated in like ducks and other waterfowl and stuff but if if a mammal were to eat an infected bird that had died
1: oh, it can I then get see. spread to them too.
0: Yeah, um, I don't know, like, if it's all mammals or just like certain groups of mammals. I don't think that that's super clear yet. But um, we've known about this this virus since the 19th century. This is not new, but it's recently become a major focus due to the effects on the poultry industry. Because we don't care about viruses until they affect <laughs> us, of course. Right. Um. So in the U.S. alone, and these numbers are probably even increase since I last looked at it but over 60 million birds that we know have have died or had to be uh, euthanized due to the virus Jeez. 60 million a lot of birds'
1: a lot of birds that's so many birds a um, of birds
0: so so symptoms of this include low energy and appetite purple coloring or swelling on the body misshapen or soft shelled eggs, nasal discharge coughing or sneezing, lack of coordination diarrhea and sudden death
1: so oh okay
0: that covers like all the bases is that all um th- that's the ones that i could find that were um like the the most
1: common symptoms
0: i'm sure there's more but kind of like <laughs> your just classic flu symptoms other than the sudden death part i guess um
1: and then misshapen shapen soft-shelled eggs
0: yeah that that's very like bird <laughs> bird centric um <laughs> But it can can be spread through close contact, such as bodily fluids or from an uninfected animal eating an infected animal. So that's how it's getting spread to mammals, we think. Um, The reason we're talking about avian flu, not only is it just because this is affecting so many animals worldwide, but the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation recently confirmed the first case that we know of, of a polar bear who died of avian flu. Hmm. Um, so we already, we already knew that grizzlies and black bears have died of avian flu, um, in the lower 48. We, we've had a couple of those cases. So I think we kind of expected that a polar bear could, could be infected. Um, and in this case, it's believed that the polar bear was probably scavenging on an infected bird that had died or, or something like that. But here's what's kind of, kind of scary is that the, the polar bear was located in one of Alaska's northernmost communities. So what does that mean? That means it's close to the Arctic, <laughs> which is okay. like the last stronghold that these polar <laughs> bears have. Um, so oh, that's, that's not good. That's
1: so unfortunate.
0: And not, not only is it just because it's close to the Arctic, that means it's gone all the way up Alaska. Um, right. So... We've had. It also says we've had bald eagles and foxes in Alaska that have also already succumbed to avian flu. And even more chilling, perhaps, is we already know of Antarctic species that have this too.
1: Oh, so it's, so, it's both poles. It's,
0: it's it's literally both poles. Um, so the first case in, in Antarctica was a brown skewa, um, which it's they cool. kind of look like. They kind of look like seagulls, um, mm. sort of. And then once we we found this case, we were like, oh, no, this is not good. And then a few months after this...
1: They do look like seagulls.
0: Yeah. We'll also probably have a picture of those posted on our social media. But a few months after this case, we found hundreds of elephant seals. Hundreds. That were just found dead because of... Oh, my God. Yeah. And I don't even know, like how elephant seals would get it. Honestly, I, I don't see them. I, I wouldn't have thought of them as, like, scavenging on dead birds, but maybe it's possible. are like,
1: what, what do elephant seals eat? I actually don't know.
0: Um, like fish and,
1: okay, I mean, mostly marine
0: up. things. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. think birds would be on the menu, but maybe, you know. if, if well, uh, I mean, I imagine they if they
1: found a bird just sitting there right for the taking, yeah. they'd probably go for it.
0: I mean the arctic is a harsh place you have to you have to do what you need to 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 survive so Mm -hmm. um but i mean of course you know researchers are very concerned because this is already in antarctica and there's some very isolated pockets of of penguins and, and gulls and other birds there and if this were to reach those isolated pockets i mean that could be devastating to all of these populations right And and this is this is scary. No, it's it's terrifying. And this is so concerning that scientists are warning, quote, this could be one of the largest ecological disasters of modern times. End quote.
1: Jeez. Okay. Okay. That's fine. It's fine. Yeah.
0: And, and here's a quote from another researcher, and I think that this really points out something something very important. So This is from Diana Bell, she's a retired professor of conservation biology at the University of East Anglia in England, and she stated, quote, when it hits a large charismatic species like a polar bear, people suddenly sit up and listen, or at least I hope they will. <laughs> We've already got a pandemic in biodiversity, and it's called H5N1, which is avian flu, because it's killed so many birds and mammals, end quote. Which like yeah, I I I think I heard about it when it first kind of hit the U.S. and started killing all of our chickens and our turkeys and yeah, stuff.
1: Yeah, I remember hearing about bird flu a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah, but then you know you I haven't heard much on it since. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just kind of took the back burner because who cares about chickens and turkeys, I guess. But then it hits a polar bear, we're all like, oh oh no, this is we actually need to solve this problem. Um, you
1: gotta save the polar bears, Phoebe.
0: It's it's always those charismatic species that, and I mean, in in a way, I mean, I'm I'm glad that now it's getting the attention that it needs, so that we can figure out how to um, better late than Never,
1: this. I guess, but
0: yeah, but but then we had to lose a polar bear to to do that. I mean, and who knows how many? I mean, there, it, other polar bears could have died at this point, and we just don't know. You know, it could mm-hmm. it could already be in the Arctic, and and we would not know. So. That's that's a very frightening, frightening thought.
1: <laughs> it is. But, do you have some happier yeah. news for us?
0: I do because I never like to end on sad, <laughs> like existential <laughs> news. Um, the Arak. and I feel like every time I Aruk. say that, I have to, I have to say it with that inflection because the name invokes just like power. Um, <laughs> but Arak's are making a comeback in Spain, so. The Arik, for those who are not, not in the know, are a humongous bovine that once roamed Europe. And they were a keystone species on the show dock. There, Jacob, you can see an image yeah, of the I'm Arik. looking at it. Huge. Massive. I mean, can you imagine just running into a herd of those things? Like, they're so big.
1: <laughs> they're big. They, they got, they got big horns.
0: They got huge horns, so they stood at nearly six feet at the shoulder. They weighed in at one and a half tons, and they were by far the largest land mammal in Europe after the the mammoths and everything went extinct, of course. Um, but but they were very important to the the ecosystem of Europe because they were natural architects for about ten thousand years. So they they kind of shaped the land because that that's what huge herbivores natural do. Architect. Yeah. So so large herbivores, especially because of the way that they're eating and they're grazing, they help to keep parts of the land open, um, which mm-hmm. provides habitat for a bunch of other species too, right? And in, in this case, it was it was habitat for like wild horses and Ibex and wolves and all these other really awesome animals. So, so they were very important to the ecology of Europe. Um, and, and they were very important to the people of 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 europe as well these early people and we found cave paintings that depicts herds of aurochs in in caves so the the people were certainly very aware of them and they were very important not only as a source of food but again maintaining that open habitat so these people could hunt all the other yeah. animals too of course this story does take a sad turn because habitat loss and overhunting led to a stark decline in in the auroch population so by the 13th century, they could only be found in very small isolated areas of Romania, Poland, Lithuania, and Bulgaria, and they they once roamed pretty much all of Europe. Um, so so it wasn't very long before we isolated them to these very small pockets. <laughs> wonderful <laughs> um, as, as humans do, it seems. Mm-hmm. and then by the early 1600s, there was only one herd left only Just one? one one herd yeah. Found in a forest in Poland. So not only was there just one herd left, but it was found in a forest, which is not where the Aureks like to be. They like to be no. in the open, open grasslands. And then officially they they went extinct when the last Aurek, a lonely female, died in that oh, same forest in 1627. That's so yeah. sad. So, so in just like tw- like 27 years, they, they were able to, to kill off this last herd. However, I do want to say that the legacy of the Arik lived on because they are the ancestors of a majority of the modern-day cattle species. So like the ones that we use for our, our meat and our milk, are descendants, very likely of the ark. So I, I think you can say with confidence that they were probably one of the most important animals of, of all time <laughs> for, for man. Um, But you might be seeing an issue with the story, Jacob, because as I said, the Arcs are making a comeback in Spain. Yeah,
1: but they're dead. They're all gone.
0: But they're gone. So how how is that possible? Well, let me tell you, Jacob, how that's possible, okay? In 2008, the Taurus Program, which is also an awesome, awesome name. That's a cool name. Yeah, was launched by ecologist Ronald Godery. So Ronald here, he saw that Ecosystems in Europe, they were failing at the time, and he wanted to start an initiative to bring back balance. And to do this, he wanted to bring back the ARC. So he stated, quote, we thought we needed a grazer that is fully self-sufficient in case of big predators and could do the job of grazing big wild areas, end quote. So, again, they had to figure out, well, how do we bring back a species that is extinct and has been extinct for centuries at this point? So, instead of trying to use some sort of complicated, like, gene editing, genetic splicing sequencer or something Jurassic like that. Jurassic Park type um, stuff. Yeah, Jurassic Park-esque. They, they came up with a, a more simple plan. So, what they wanted to do was breed back the ARK.
1: Breed back? Like, <laughs>
0: breed reverse back. evolution?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, like, sort of. So... As I said earlier, the, the genes of Aurex are found in, in many of the modern cattle species that we have. So what they did was they, they took like the, the bones that we did have of Aurex and, you know, kind of like artist renditions of them and stuff like that. Um, and they identified lineages that we have today that are very similar to the Aurex in like Whoa. body shape and size and like horn shape and all these other things. So their idea was that if we breed these together, we can get something that will be pretty much identical to the Arik in terms of behavior and size and all these other things, which I think is awesome. That's such it's a cool so way to cool. do it. Now, these would not be the exact kind of Arik, so they came up with another name for these. And and this this uh, bovine was dubbed as Taros. Oh, okay, which is epic. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they had some help from some universities too, and so some researchers from the University College of Dublin they uh, were able to get the genome of the Aric, and so they could compare the Tauros that they were getting the offspring to the Aric and see how close they were basically of of getting that Aric back, which is awesome. So in the first batch. Of little little Taros babies are born. Goteri
1: stated,
0: "Tarai, I guess." Um, Godery stated, "Quote: You could see from the first generation that apart from horn size, there was enough wild in the breed to produce animals far closer to the Arik than we would have expected." End quote.
1: That's so cool.
0: So they did even better. They did even better than they thought they would, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't long after this they started getting these Taros babies that were even more and more close to the Arik that the program reached out to Rewilding Europe, which is an awesome, awesome group. And they support the restoration of natural habitat and species across the continent. So they're the ones who are helping to bring back a lot of species and saving a bunch of area and stuff like that. So in partnership with Rewilding Europe, they were able to secure lands in Croatia, Spain, Portugal, the Czech Republic and Romania to bring these Targos back. And the idea here was that they would allow these taros to have like test runs basically in like a wild mm-hmm. habitat to see like, okay, how how are we doing with this? So they released them at the Croatian site. This was kind of the first site that they they wanted to test here. And they, they knew that herbivores like the wild horses that were already here were known to be predated on by wolves and sometimes in very large numbers. And so they were kind of like, oh well this this might not work out very well for our, our taros. Right. But the taros quickly adapted and learned to defend themselves. And, and losses to wolves <laughs> have been minimal so far. Whoa. And here's the, here's the coolest part of this whole story. So obviously they're, the people are researching them as they're in this wild environment, right? And they're using like thermal energy cameras to see them at night and stuff. And they, they witnessed this behavior where there was a pack of wolves that came in to try and get one of the taros. And the bulls all formed a semicircle around the cows and the calves. And they kind of like rear their heads up and put their horns down and like stop with their hooves and stuff like that. And
1: uh-huh. not only were
0: they protecting the rest of the taro's herd, but there was a little herd of horses nearby that also came <laughs> over and joined the circle. <laughs> they were like, well, dang, That's I awesome. guess we'll, we'll oh, just go where these guys are. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, this is so cool because, like, these are ecological, like, species-species interactions that we have not seen in in thousands of years. That's like, so cool. It's so cool. So not only are they natural architects, but they're, like, the guard dogs of, of of Croatia now with all these little horses, too.
1: That's so cool.
0: It's so awesome. So that's that's the Auric. Such the a mighty cool Auric.
1: Or now the mighty Tauros.
0: The mighty Tauros. I know. I feel like I have to just really like.
1: <laughs> ah. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to Animal Trivia. In this segment, I'll be quizzing our resident so-called expert Phoebe Carnes on all things animal. How are you? How are you feeling today, Phoebe? Are you feeling feeling a little more confident after after last time? No. You've had you've had like. Two and a half episodes to prepare. Well, well you know, it's, it's to hard to
0: study when we're talking about the entirety of the animal kingdom, possibly, that, that could be on this
1: quiz. So. That sounds like an excuse to me. Maybe. Well, Maybe fortunately or unfortunately, Phoebe, today most of my questions are uh, very uh, mammal-centric. So okay. we'll see how well you know your mammals. Yes, we will. All right. So our first question for you today, Phoebe, is yep. what animal has the highest blood pressure
0: the highest blood pressure Mm -hmm. this is a dumb question um
1: (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean what do you mean why would you not know this
0: jacob tell me Mm -hmm, one mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. time in my life that i would ever (laughs) need this in like conversation or, I don't know
1: you, I don't know. You claim to be the expert, so I just thought you might know this kind no, of
0: thing. I, no, I don't. That is that is you. Um, okay, the highest you wanna, blood pressure. You
1: want to you at least try and take a couple stabs at it?
0: I can. Can I ask for hints on this or no? Sure, you can ask for okay. hints.
1: I'll give, you, I'll I have give a hint? you that, please. Um, African. <laughs> <laughs> okay that's I feel great there was a down a lot actually
0: uh well considering africa is one of the most biodiverse places in, in the world sure um okay african the highest blood pressure i'm trying to think of like what animals would need really high blood pressure um hmm i don't know i feel once like you, it,
1: once you hear it it's gonna be like oh yeah that makes sense
0: i'm sure i'm sure it will like, I feel like hippos are just so mad at the world all the time. They're so stressed out. <laughs> like, I feel like their blood pressure must be through the roof.
1: Well, that is, that is not correct.
0: But it's kind of funny to think about. It is
1: funny to think about. I It's my new headcanon for hippos.
0: <laughs> it's that they're just so mad at the world that their blood pressure is going crazy all the time. Boiling. <laughs> um, okay. I'm going to give you
1: one more. Because if yeah. you don't get in this next one, you're probably not going to get it okay no pressure
0: yeah huh, get it because blood pressure <laughs> that's, he made a pun
1: <laughs> yeah totally on <laughs> purpose oh yeah what you got what you got
0: uh, man is it is it can i ask you if it's bigger or larger than a hippo uh, bigger or larger that's great phoebe bigger or smaller bigger. is what i meant
1: um, um In the amount of space it takes up, yes, but I cannot say that it's bigger in like mass.
0: What does that even mean? In the amount of space
1: it takes up, you'll you understand. I give me give me another guess, Phoebe.
0: Highest blood pressure, larger than a hippo with the amount of space it takes up, and maybe or maybe (laughs) not
1: larger in mass. i don't know i don't know
0: what even is say- this question <laughs> well, i'm, I'm trying okay i'll just i'll just throw something out there i don't know larger and in, in the space it takes you up. got
1: this baby come on
0: is it i'm tra- sure it like a rhino i don't know because no
1: but it's that's like kind of close
0: kind of close yeah
1: are you not really are you <laughs> are you ready <laughs> no
0: i'm i'm actually- i'm excited to learn though this is it's gonna it's be a fun. giraffe oh I see what you meant by maybe in, in <laughs> right it takes up. why why <laughs> in the world do they have such high blood pressure do we I, know
1: <laughs> I, I guess it has a lot of neck i i looked it up and oh all that that i found makes was sense. that yeah I was thinking it's because they have it has to go really far that's yeah. kind, of, kind of what I was thinking um but i could not really find any information on why i all i could find is that they do and i found this random fact of that they have um about twice or their blood pressure is about two times higher than ours
0: wow i mean yeah i guess that makes sense if you have to get it all the way up that huge neck that yeah so that's
1: that was my theory but you know all right. All right. So that bit of a rocky start there, Phoebe. I can't believe yeah. you didn't know that one. That Thanks. One was Thanks easy. for that
0: question, Jacob. Appreciate um, we're that. We're gonna
1: we're gonna like drop down really f- far because I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure you're gonna know the answer to this one. What color is a polar bear's skin? Oh, it's black. Yeah. Yeah. I figured. I figured I'd, I'd give you an easier one. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but did you know that the black color can better absorb the sun's warm rays, helping polar bears stay warm more easily in the frigid temperatures?
0: I didn't know that. Yeah, it's very
1: helpful for them. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're going to go back up a little bit. <laughs> okay. How long do southern elephant seals sleep? Like
0: in a day or like a yearly?
1: Yes, in a day.
0: In a day? Oh, probably a mm-hmm. long time. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it depends. I think there's there's like fluctuations throughout the year too. Um, I'm gonna say like 20, 20 hours. Is that close? Is that your final answer? Well, I mean, there's there's like there's twenty four possible answers that I could
1: choose. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna go. I guess that's true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've all the pictures I see them is of them sleeping or fighting. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. gonna say I'm gonna say like twenty hours and.
1: 20 it's- hours that's your final answer going once yeah. going twice yeah okay that is wrong okay, well, i have two plus poss- there are two correct answers and that is the multiple of the two correct answers um so there's actually a recent study in uh, april of uh, 2023 um not sure why they were studying Elephants sleeping but you know that's cool uh, so they found that they uh, spend about ten hours a day sleeping on the beach during the breeding season which is when you all those pictures of mm-hmm. you seeing them all yeah. grouped up and sleeping but um, during uh, the off season I guess when uh, when they go on their months-long foraging trips they sleep on an average of just two hours a day that's such a shift you're right to t- ten hours to two hours so I, like, I I thought that was thought that was interesting. I found the, the the very short one number first. I was like, is that is that right? And then <laughs> upon researching I found out about their the you know, their shift in uh in sleeping sleeping hours.
0: I feel like when my sleeping schedule shifts it takes me like a whole 2 months to to right, get
1: it. Right, Like when right. the times change, <laughs> oh my lord. Oh my
0: gosh. I know. Okay. I'm terrible.
1: So so you were... I'm, I'll say you were you were close ish. You were the multiple no, ten times two.
0: Don't <laughs> lie to me. Like... Don't make me feel better. I was anyway. Not at all uh, close. <laughs> what is
1: what is the smallest mammal in the world, Phoebe?
0: Oh, is it the? Uh, I think there's it's called two, the bumblebee
1: bat. There's two potential correct answers. Yes, is that is that is correct. So I have two here because it kind of okay. depends on what you mean by smallest. Yeah. Um, the kitty's hog-nosed bat, otherwise known as the bumblebee bat. Is the smallest by size, um, like uh, body and skull length, I believe is what is measured by. Okay. Um, and their average body length is just over an inch. Aw. So itty, b- itty bitty. Cute. Um, but the smallest mammal by weight is the Etruscan shrew, weighing at 1.8 grams or 0. 0.063 ounces.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Those things look malnourished. I've never seen a tree <laughs> that looks healthy in my life.
1: That's true. That's true. But th- I looked these ones up and they are itty bitty as well. Oh, cute. Um, so those are super cute. You'll have to check those out on our uh, social media after oh, the yeah. episode has been published. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, the last one we have, and this one's mm-hmm. a pretty good one too. Okay. What is the most venomous mammal?
0: Oh, the slow loris? Well, venomous. No, sorry. I was thinking because they have like poisonous armpits and it's weird. Um, it's, it's the platypus, I think.
1: It yeah, is like the duck-billed platypus. That is correct. Congratulations, Phoebe. Um, yeah. The duck-billed platypus has a venom that is administered through spurs on their hind legs. And while not fatal to humans, they can cause reportedly unbelievable pain at the injury site and associated limb and that can last for days or even months so i'm not i'm not looking to try and get stung i guess by Stabbed, uh, by <laughs> yeah stabbed a little bit so let's see you got uh don't one, say my grade uh two three <laughs> out of five so the same plat- as last time 60 that's a 60
0: it's still a passing so grade
1: you've still passed you still passed
0: Well, now, now it's time for my favorite segment. Weird, wacky, and wondrous. In this segment, I'm going to be showing a series of images to Jacob of one of the weirdest, wackiest, or most wondrous animals that I was able to think of. And Jacob has to tell me all about it. And we're going to see I'm so how excited. close he gets. So... I chose something a little different than, than what we did last time with the salp. This one is not look like a pile of, of trash in the ocean. This one is a little bit different. So, Jacob, if you would like to pull up the first image okay. that we have here.
1: I'd just, just like to, to tell the audience that I've been looking at this page for weeks and that there is this page. So, it's, it's Google Doc. <laughs> We've got all of our stuff on it. And then there's a... A solid page in big, bold, red, highlighted letters. It says, "Jacob, do not look beyond this point." And I have been staring at it for like a just week waiting. and a half, just waiting. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so ready. All right, let's it's do this. It's time for you to look past the point. What is that?
0: Tell me about it, Jacob. Tell me what you're looking oh,
1: at, Lord. It's kind of, kind of freaky, honestly. Um, <laughs>
0: is it the eyes? <laughs>
1: yeah it's the eyes I, yeah, okay so yeah. it looks like a bat first and foremost
0: it looks yeah. like a bat okay
1: um it's got but it's got like a rat face its face looks like a rat <laughs> uh-huh. it's got big bulging eyes yeah it's got a pretty short snout honestly and it's got tiny ears which if it's a bat which now i'm not so sure
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's those those ears aren't echolocating nothing no. Can't find nothing with those ears. No, um, but it's got—it's like a grayish brown tan fur, and it's got—it's hanging on to a tree with like little hooks. It looks like a bat. It's got—looks it like it's got, uh, webbed appendages. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's cool. <gasps> I scrolled down to the next image, Phoebe. I don't know yeah. if I was supposed to or not. I can
0: tell by the gasp that you made.
1: <laughs> it's got a little baby. <laughs> Does it have a pouch? Is it a marsupial? I don't know. Is it? I don't I don't know. Oh, my God. They're freaky.
0: But, I mean, it's definitely oh. in like a – it's definitely – it looks like it's kind of in a pouch, doesn't it?
1: it yeah, it looks – either that or it's just creating a pouch between its body and the tree. But it looks like mm-hmm. it's in a pouch. Yeah. And it looks like it has, uh, it's like a, sh- more of a sugar glider than it is a, uh, bat on okay. closer inspection.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Cause, uh, yeah, those, those wings are not flying anywhere, I don't think. Yeah, it's a glider.
0: Mm-hmm. It's definitely
1: a glider. I scrolled down some more, by the way. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Um... So I don't know much about individual species of these gliders. I know that there's a handful of them, yeah, and but i'm not I'm also not sure which ones which names are actual species and which ones are just localized versions like the sugar glider. I have no idea if that's just a localized name or if like a chinchilla is the same thing or a flying squirrel. I have no idea zero
0: i I believe sugar glider is like the generally accepted common name, but yeah, I might be wrong
1: so. Wait, let me look at. I want to look at this image closer. If I zoom in, is it just gonna freak out? No, okay, cool. So I'm looking at the last image right now. Okay, yeah. It is a very freaky image. <laughs> Which is it the fact that their eyes
0: are glowing red because of the that, light shining on just,
1: them? <laughs> they're just generally a little off-putting.
0: Yeah, a little bit. That's
1: a lot of. That's a lot of skin being stretched. <laughs> it, yeah. like a, it looks like a kite. It looks like a kite.
0: It does and yeah.
1: I'm not comfortable with that I'm j- I'm really just trying to see if it has a pouch or not because I actually don't know if screw gliders are marsupials or not so but okay. from this this yeah. image is very low resolution out I've zoomed in like 12 times
0: I know I, I tried my best to find but yeah. these are not these are not very often seen
1: so right they're nocturnal I know that much yeah Pretty sure mm-hmm um but it looks like it doesn't really look like that baby's in a pouch. Kind of just looks like it's holding on for dear life.
0: It really is gripping as hard as it can. It's, it's, <laughs> it is.
1: Um, so I'm going to say I'm going to say they don't have a pouch. I don't know. Not, they've got so much skin, loose skin. They really do. And it's very hard to tell if these babies are like in a pouch or they're just wrapped up. Okay. All right. So this is sugar glider esque. I see yeah. it is one. Um, okay. They they glide around. They don't fly. They jump from tree to tree. And they like whoosh, whoosh like a kite and they just kind of glide. Yeah. Um, They are nocturnal. So they, they come out at night when there's less predators around. Even though like three of these images are them in the day. But I still am fairly certain they're nocturnal.
0: Someone um, might have just I woken I st- them up from a nap. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I am going to say that they eat squirrel things like nuts, okay. berries, probably the occasional insect because I don't see why not. Um, yeah, that's about, I think that's about all I got.
0: Nice. Well, kind of as last time you were, you were right about a lot of things and then not right about some things, but you know, oh, that's, man. so this amazing give me, animal, give me the good news. <laughs> this awesome animal is the Sunda Kalugo.
1: I know. <laughs> they're also they're
0: also called flying lemurs. Um, oh,
1: okay. I did think it looked more like a lemur than a squirrel.
0: Yeah, they they have kind of that. I could see what you were saying with like the rat face, like very right. long. Um, but they're not actually lemurs, so this is kind of a misleading name. Um, mm-hmm. They they have a common ancestor with primates and tree shrews, but they're actually kind of their own little group of mammals. So they're just kind of oh, they're just hanging off. News on their own doing doing their thing um and they do glide and they are the best gliders in the mammal kingdom by far
1: so they got a lot of skin they
0: have a lot of skin so that specialized fur covered membrane that specialized skin is called a patagium
1: patagium okay patagium
0: okay. it connects to their face their claws and their tail kind of like a wingsuit sort of
1: mm-hmm. um
0: and, and their wingspan is one to one and a half feet in length which is quite Jeez. big considering that they're they're not they're huge tiny. animals yeah so they and, and using this wingsuit this one to one and a half foot wingsuit that they have they can travel over 650 feet in one glide
1: yeah that's a lot that's a lot that's a lot
0: yeah um they also have some web feet to help them glide and grip onto trees as you were saying um and you mentioned that you know they don't have huge ears so so they're not echolocating that is true However, there were scientists that were studying back communication and they accidentally discovered that Kalugos also can use ultrasound to communicate. That's how they talk to each other.
1: Interesting. Okay. I don't know
0: how they hear that with their tiny yeah. ears, but somehow, 80, 80 <laughs> somehow they, they do. Um, who am I to judge? Who, yeah. And you were right about what they eat. So they have their teeth are kind of like little hair combs. And so they can mm-hmm. eat leaves and fruits and, you know, sometimes insects and and other things like that. And one of the coolest things about the kalugo is that the the mama Kalugos will use that membrane, that wingsuit, to shield her baby for up to six months, almost like a pouch.
1: Okay. Until the so, baby uh, swings. So they're not marsupials.
0: They're not marsupials, but they pretend to be because they just use right. all of that skin as a okay, makeshift pouch. So that's what pouch. I
1: thought. Yeah, because I was looking at it and I was like, that looks like a pouch. Yeah. But then I'm looking down and like there's no there's no pouch there. Okay. That's cool. Oh, I feel so cool about that.
0: Yeah, Kalugos are really awesome.
1: I that's, love that's them. Cool. Super fun.
0: Yeah, you did really well. Good job. Yeah. I'm impressed. I'm impressed.
1: Cool. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. You're like welcome. I say, all in a, all in a day's work.
0: Oh yeah, naturally. Now to end the podcast, Jacob.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, you know, I all all my social media feeds doesn't matter if I'm on TikTok or Instagram or what. It's all just animal videos and edible things, right? Uh
1: huh. Uh-huh. And
0: the the animal that has just been taking over all of my social media feeds is this
1: seal. Have you have you
0: heard of Neil the seal?
1: I cannot say I have.
0: Jacob, let me tell Ooh. you about this. Are you looking at the picture?
1: I am looking, right he's now. got a little, he's got the little satellite.
0: And he has hat. a very mischievous face, I think. He does. Yes. So there's this little town in Tasmania, it's called Dunnelly. And they have this seal, this 1,000 pound seal, a three-year-old male Southern elephant seal, to be more uh, specific, affectionately dubbed Neil, Neil the Seal. So every year, our our good buddy Neil here he hauls himself up out of the ocean. They call this a haul-out period um, that, oh, these wow. <laughs> that these elephant seals do where, like, they've been at the ocean for a few months eating, and now they just need a break, you know? They need a break from swimming around, and they That's just— That's where
1: they get the twenty the 10 hours—the yeah. 20 hours of sleep, even. Uh,
0: yeah, uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and so they, they just need time to relax and, and molt and do all the things that seals need to do, right? And yes, seals do molt. Apparently, I found that huh. out. Um, That's gross. Yeah, a little bit. But this is, you know, this is what what Neil's doing. But but Neil has kind of taken it to another level. So so Neil, being the quote, this is an actual quote that the people have have said. Neil, being the quote, unstoppable force of inconvenience, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> that he is. He likes to lengthen his stay a little bit. So the, the haul-out period for most elephant seals is like, you know, four to five weeks. Neil, he's just hanging around for a couple months, okay? And, and he's got some attitude problems as well that is very, very amusing and frustrating to the humans, his human neighbors <laughs> on this island. So, so Neil, in his spare time, he likes to play with traffic cones and signs, knock them over, tear them to shreds. He likes <laughs> to sunbathe. Do in busy roads because where else would he want to sunbathe but the middle of a road? Um, and he likes he likes to lounge on the doorsteps of, of his neighbors' houses too, just sprawled out, <laughs> all one thousand pound of him just spread out as far as he could go. And there's been people who have even had to call into work saying they can't come to work because Neil is taking a nap in front of their car. <laughs> And you're, you can't oh get him God. to move. <laughs> Just imagine, no, like, being all one th- Just imagine being able to, like, call into work, like, sorry, I can't come in. You know, Neil.
1: Neil's you know at Neil. it again.
0: <laughs> He's taking a nap in, my, in <laughs> front of my trickster. car, you know. Now that that trickster Neil. Um, and, you know, Neil, his story has captured the hearts of many people, but wildlife experts are a little bit concerned, as they should be. Because Neil is becoming very hab- habituated to people, to humans. Um, so the Marine Conservation Program, they've been monitoring Neil for a couple of years. They put that tracking device on his head as well that you saw earlier. <laughs> they, they've had to relocate him a time or two before already.
1: <laughs> so, just keeps coming back.
0: So back in 2022, he, quote, caused a ruckus, end quote, along a beach. Mm. I don't know what that means, but, you know. I'll leave it up to your imagination. And they had to relocate him after that. So Neil's already been in a little bit of trouble. And they've released this statement, quote, We love that you think Neil is cool. And we agree. (laughs) I agree as well. But what's not cool is people harassing and touching the seal, end quote. So I don't know. I guess people have been trying to give him high fives or something. Not a good idea. Um, And this is of special concern because... Male elephant seals are the largest of the seal species. Are you are you looking at the image I'm looking at right now? Yes, I am. Of him in front of that car?
1: Uh-huh. Like, that's there's a big, no way that's, that's a big real. Role.
0: That is, I don't even think, I think that is of a female, too. That's not even a male, and they're just a huge. Big,
1: a, a big, big critter.
0: That's, he's massive. So when Neil turns about 10 years old, he's going to be around 13 feet in length.
1: Oh okay. and
0: and probably weigh over two tons two tons of the unstoppable force of inconvenience <laughs> that he is um, and during during this prime time of his life he's gonna travel to one of the local breeding grounds in the area right and he's gonna need some attitude. Because according to the Australian government, quote, this species provides one of the most extreme examples of (laughs) polygamy among mammals. The social units are harems, each held by a single dominant male that monopolizes access to up to 120 to 150 sexually receptive females for a period of several months.
1: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) that's why they sleep so long.
0: Yeah. And not only that but it's estimated that only 2 to 3% of the males in the population will ever be able to breed <laughs> because the, the competition is so fierce can That's, you imagine
1: oh only 2 to 3% <laughs>
0: only 2 to 3% so rest easy while you can Neil.
1: you're going to need it <laughs>
0: you're going to need it for the next couple of years of your life <laughs>
1: good luck good luck good, Neil. Luck, good Neil. luck out there
0: just i can't even imagine like walking outside of my door and just seeing this seal like sitting there on my doorstep
1: <laughs> just chilling
0: just chilling and like i don't know if you've seen the videos i'll send mm-hmm. some to you after this but he'll just like look at people and and like scream at them it's like <laughs> <laughs> he does not care at all
1: <laughs> that's so funny
0: it's so funny. Well that was a fun episode of the podcast that was
1: a fun episode this
0: was awesome so thank you everyone for for tuning in and listening we hope that you enjoyed um if you have any feedback that you would like to give us because we are looking for all the feedback tell us about the things you love all
1: the feedback tell us what you hated what you despised what you okay, never well want maybe to see again
0: not despised i hope um but if you did despise something certainly let us know um <laughs> and you know if you want to support us we have all the social medias twitter and tiktok and instagram we are most active on instagram um What's and we're really for that phoebe the metazoa podcast
1: that's yeah. right
0: oh yeah it's the one and only the only one, one and only the one and only metazoa podcast the best podcast on the air by far um as we know so thank you for everyone for tuning in and we hope to see you in the next one
1: Bye-bye! Bye-bye!